You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are in John chapter 4. Why? Because we've already done 1 through 3, and we like to do things in order. So, we are going to a story where we're going to try to understand God's deep affection for you. And because of that deep affection that he has for you, he wants to do a deep work in you. Today, you're going to meet a Samaritan woman at a well. She gets almost an entire chapter of the Bible. It really shows how much Jesus honors women. And as we get to meet her and see the story of her life, I want her experience to be your experience as well. So the story begins. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, those are the people that are always antagonizing Jesus, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. These are two regions that we're going to get to hear more about in a moment, and they're, they're important to know. And then it says that he had to go through Samaria. He had to because it was God's will. Now, he could have gone around Samaria, but he had to go through. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. The geography is important. Here's what's going on. So the the nation of Israel is a pretty long, slender country. There is Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and right in the middle are the Samaritans. And it's a group of people that largely rebelled against God. They did what you're not supposed to do. They married people who worshiped other gods. And as believers, are we only supposed to marry other believers Yes, <laughs> write that down, all you single people. God doesn't want you as a believer to marry unbelievers. Here's why. Because if someone doesn't know your God, they won't really know you because they won't know the most important thing about you. If you cannot connect with another person at the soul level, then you cannot connect with them at the deepest level. So God's people are supposed to marry God's people. What they did was rebel and marry other people, people from other religions. As a result, their kids would grow up confused. As a result, they themselves would be led astray from the true worship of the God of the Bible. In the Samaritan's case, they got rid of most of the Old Testament, most of the Bible as we knew it. They would practice all manner of sexual sins. They even practiced child sacrifice. The animosity and hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews was so real that it almost became dangerous for the two people groups to meet. So if you were a Jewish person and you wanted to travel from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, it would take you six days to walk around Samaria. 
Now, it would only take you three days to walk through. Most Jewish people walked around. You know, you really got to hate somebody if you're going to walk an extra three days just to avoid them. You despise them. You don't want a relationship with them. That's how intense it was. But God comes to earth. His name is Jesus. And he doesn't go around Samaria. He goes into Samaria because God is a God who pursues the outcast. God is a God who accepts people who have been rejected by other people. Maybe some of you here today are, are watching online or embarrassed by your lifestyle and maybe being in church even makes you feel uncomfortable. You're wondering if God could ever desire to have a relationship with you. Not only does God come to earth, God comes to earth and walks right into the middle of a danger zone because he's got one woman he wants to meet. That's how much God loves people. Well, the story is going to pivot to where Jesus is passing through Samaria and he sits down and has a conversation with a woman. We're told it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Like, okay, why is the big story around water? What is, you know, why a well? What does this have to do with anything? Well, no pun intended. Thank you for the five of you that just got that. In that day and time, it was typically one well per community. So it was a big deal. The only place you're going to get fresh water is at that one well. And in this particular case, that one well, as we were just told, stems all the way back from the time in the book of Genesis, a land that Jacob owned, one of the patriarchs, then it was given to his son Joseph. So at one time, it was a place where worship of the God of the Bible took place. But over time, as the Samaritans rebelled and did their own thing and became disobedient and now is a place of idolatry and disobedience to God. So she's at this well. And it would be customary for women and children to come to a well to draw out water. And we're told the Samaritan woman came to the well, but at what time of the day? It was noon. Why not in the cool of the morning? These are rejected people who rejected her. These are outcasts who cast her aside. These are the most confused people, and she is so confused that they want to have nothing to do with her. Some of you know what this feels like. You were in a friend's group, and now you're not. You check social media. They got together. I didn't know. I guess I'm out. For some of you, it's that way in your family. You were in, now you're out. This woman is out. How do we know? Because what would happen is the women would go to the well in the cool of the morning. And what do you think they would do? They would socialize. They would visit. And this woman wasn't welcome. She had to go at a time where she was all by herself. It just so happened to be in the heat of the day. She was that dejected, that rejected. Next few verses Jesus said to her will you give me a drink his disciples had gone into the town to buy food the Samaritan woman said to him you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman 
how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let me say this. There are a lot of obstacles that Jesus has to hurdle to make this encounter happen with this woman. The first obstacle that, she, that he hurdles is what is an obstacle for all of us. It's the distinction between God and us. But here he is. Jesus is God who becomes a person. He came down to our level. The next problem that they would have had is Jew versus Gentile. I'm sorry, Jew versus Samaritan in this case. Well, here he is, a Jew, and he's going into Samaria. The next barrier is between godly people and ungodly people. And here Jesus is approaching her. The next barrier is between men and women. In that day, men and women did not interact with one another very much, especially not in public. So she is startled. Here is a man, a Jewish man in Samaria wanting to have a conversation with me. Not only that, but when he asks for a drink, we may miss the social significance of that. It was an act of hospitality to draw water for somebody to give them a drink. Jesus is at the well, and he doesn't have anything with him with which to draw water. Now, there was a custom in that culture, not from God's word. This is something that was man-made. It was the religious leaders came up with this. That if a Jewish person were to drink out of a vessel of a Samaritan, that Jewish person would be unclean. Here's the truth. We are all unclean. And Jesus comes to make us clean. Religious people are all worried about being defiled, not understanding they already are defiled, and they need to be made clean too. So in asking for a drink of water, Jesus, in effect, is doing what today's equivalent would be of, hey, let's, let's have coffee together. This is an invitation for a social interaction. You need to see Jesus is a relational God. Next verse, so Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the same God that made the natural world, made this supernatural world, and sometimes he uses things in the physical natural world to make sense of the supernatural world. Your body needs water to survive. Without it, you become dehydrated and you get in great danger. What Jesus is going to tell her is that in addition to your body, you have a soul. And the fuel that God intends for that soul to run on is the living water of the Holy Spirit. The soul is the essence of who you are. It's the center of who you are. Your soul will go on to God when you die. And at Jesus' second coming, it will reunite with the body and then go to be with God forever. The soul belongs to God. So let me tell you this. You are to steward your soul. What Jesus is telling this woman is that your soul needs the spirit as much as your body needs the water. And just so you know, there is no water for your soul in this world. If your soul is to be nurtured, it's got to be a provision from the Lord. Some of you have tried to nurture your soul in this world, and you have found that nothing brings health and life to your soul in this world. You need living water. 
The story continues. Next couple of verses. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? If someone said, hey, I can install a fresh water well on your property that will give you water forever, wouldn't you jump at it? And here in the desert, like she is, where there's fresh water, there's life. Even better than fresh water flowing on your property forever is the ministry of the Holy Spirit trying to refresh you. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You're going to have to keep coming back to this well time and time and time again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This woman is lonely. She's an outcast. She's shame-filled. She's rejected. No one has poured life into her. All men have ever done is take life from her. All the rest of the community has ever done is not want to be with her, reject her. What she's looking for at the soul level cannot be met by another human being. She wants someone who would never leave her nor forsake her. She wants someone who will never abandon her, always forgive her. There's only one person who can satisfy that longing. It is Jesus And if you were to hand your spouse the script that only Jesus' life can fulfill, you will ruin that relationship. This is her problem. This is her pain. And Jesus says, you keep coming to the well for your body. You need to take the well with you for your soul. And what he's referring to is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, this is going to be an interesting twist. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. This is culturally unacceptable. First century world, unheard of. Any of you that are divorced, you may wonder, is there any forgiveness for me? Yes, that's why the church exists. We all need a meeting place with Jesus. He says, the fact, you, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. This is complicated relationship history, right? He finishes, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now the conversation takes another turn. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Some people wonder if she's changing the subject. Maybe. Woman, Jesus replied, 
believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now look, cults, religions, they worship. They just don't know who God is. Oh, they're very devoted to worship, but if you worship the wrong God, it's not very helpful. Next several verses. Jesus says, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He himself is Jewish. He is the Savior. Here comes your salvation is what he's saying. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's like, can't wait for him to show up. (laughs) And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's not often that Jesus clearly reveals who he is. He does to this woman. This is a divine appointment. Jesus has scheduled this meeting. She was unaware of it. She was just going about her daily routine, and Jesus shows up. Now, let me pause here and say there are three basic ways to look at this story, to look at her story. Number one is through the lens of culture. Look, she's chosen an alternative lifestyle. Who are we to judge? They're consenting adults. No one's really getting hurt. A second way to view her story is through the lens of religion. She's out of control. What a dirty lady. We'll talk about her, but we won't talk to her. And who are we to bring change to her? The third approach would be what brothers and sisters in Christ do when they open the Word of God and they see this situation through the lens of the Father. She is broken. And she has to be healed at the soul level. She's not going to be right in her lifestyle until she is healed there. The good news is she just met the one who has the Father's heart, and he wants to speak life into her. We just read a part of this conversation that had to do with worship. Maybe she's changing the subject. She might be getting to the real heart and root of her problem. The the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans was largely in part due to the issue of worship. The temple was the holiest place on earth. That's where the Jewish people would go. They were called to go there by God. Yes, they had synagogues like neighborhood churches in in many towns. But at least on three occasions throughout the year, these major festivals, every able-bodied male Jew, but not just males, were to go to the temple and there as one larger family worship God be in his presence together. This was God's decree. He gave that plan to King David, who then his son Solomon built the temple. Years go by, it falls into disrepair. And there are two men, Nehemiah and Ezra, in the Old Testament, who undertook the rebuilding campaign of the temple. 
The Samaritans at the time asked, can we participate? No, you're not welcome. So they built their own temple. And the rivalry increased. She meets Jesus. He's a Jew who worships in Jerusalem. She's a Samaritan who worships in Samaria. And she asks, where's the right place to go to church? And Jesus says some things that are amazing. First, he says that the Father is seeking worshipers. This woman is learning that God is a Father who wants worshipers. Those are people. In other words, he's seeking you. You may not believe this, but worship doesn't just start and stop. It's not supposed to. Worship is a lifestyle. As we connect with Jesus through the flow of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that worshipers will worship him in spirit. That means it's a spiritual activity. And in truth. So the Holy Spirit fills you to be able to worship and connect with the Father as a soul level. And in truth, meaning you worship the right God in the right way. Because the right God decides how he is to be worshipped. So you may come to church and say, well that worship doesn't work for me. The question is, does that worship work for God? Because you're not the one being worshipped. You are the choir. You're the band. He's the audience. And the word of God has to be opened so we understand who the true God is and how to worship him only. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can make that personal connection. She's asking, how do I do that? Where do I do that? And Jesus says, it's a new day. You don't go to God, God comes to you. You don't go to a temple, you become a temple. Now from an outsider's view, she is the furthest thing away from a temple. But Jesus isn't finished with her. In fact, God is already coming to her. What this means is that she can worship God wherever. Think first century world. She can be making dinner and worshiping God. She can be raising the kids, worshiping God. If you are a child of God, you are the temple of God. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered the life of Jesus resides in you. That means God's presence goes with you and flows through you. Now look, she was already a worshiper. She worshipped love, she worshipped men, she worshipped relationships, but she didn't worship God. You and I, we are all worshipers. We were made to worship. You cannot help but worship. Some people worship their job. Some people worship a sports team. Some people worship their IQ or their income or their house or their kids. It's not a matter of if you worship. It's who, what, and how you worship. So here's the point. This, wor this woman worshipped herself into a crisis. She was worshipping the wrong things. So she was going to have to worship her way out of a crisis. How do you do that? What are the first two commands? There is one God. Worship him only. So how do you stop your addictions? How do you stop your negative lifestyle patterns? You become a worshiper. You stop worshiping created things and you start worshiping the creator, God. I think Jesus knows that if she met the real God, she would be an amazing worshiper. Verse 27. Just then, 
his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They missed the whole thing. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? It's kind of like somebody needs to say something. Okay, one, two, three, not it. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the thing that she needed the most was no longer the most important thing to her. Once she met Jesus, it's it's amazing. All the stuff we thought was important just doesn't matter so much anymore. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, now she's a missionary. She doesn't know much, but she knows Jesus. She's met him. She went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This woman went from running from people to running to people. Verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. The townspeople wanted to know and meet Jesus. If they could see such a drastic change in her, there must be something true about this encounter. Maybe they can have their life affected as well. They came out and made their way toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. That was my Jewish um, (laughs) accent. Again, they don't get it, do they? <laughs> okay, these guys weren't necessarily the all-star team at the, at the start. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. <laughs> I'm sure they're like, what? Who gave him something? I mean, they were out in the desert. There was just two people. Where did he get food? But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Jesus then explains, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying One sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Here's what he's saying. People need Jesus. People are messed up. They need Jesus. People are so naughty. They need Jesus. People are spiritually confused. They need Jesus. Here's the truth. We are all Samaritans. We are all messed up. We are all religiously confused. We are all naughty. We all have problems. We all need Jesus. And Jesus is saying these people are realizing that their belief, their passion is misdirected. They're knowing that it's not working for them and they're actually open to me. You know, sometimes you tell somebody about Jesus and it just clicks in an instant. Other times, that salvation is a process. But here's my encouragement to you. Jesus is still scheduling meetings. Here's more of the story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony 
He told me everything I ever did. She's no longer running from people. She's running to people. She's no longer uh, ashamed of her story because God has changed her story. And he wants to do that for you today. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Look, Jesus gets kicked out of his own hometown. The religious leaders hated him. And these quote-unquote despised Samaritans can't get enough of him. Verse 41. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world, that God really does care for us. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. A few things to share with you. Number one, you can't have a healthy relationship with anyone until you have a healthy relationship with Jesus. That was this woman's story. It was wrong guy after wrong guy. But there was a constant, the only constant variable in these six relationships. It was her. So she was the wrong woman too. And until she has a healthy relationship with Jesus, she can't have a healthy relationship with anyone. That's true of you as well. Some of you are not doing well with relationships, especially marriage, because you keep handing the script that belongs only to Jesus, and you're wanting your spouse to fulfill it. If you want love, you need Jesus. If you want forgiveness, you need Jesus. If you want wisdom, you need Jesus. If you want someone that will never leave you nor forsake you, you need Jesus. And if you want someone for whom you're not going to get on their last nerve, for sure you need Jesus. How is your relationship with him? Number two, Jesus not only forgives sins, he lifts burdens. This woman was burdened. She was rejected, dejected. She was used and abused. She's all by herself. Jesus lifts that burden. She runs into town and she says, let me tell you about how I am free. Number three, Jesus wants to put a well in your soul. Jesus wants you to experience the presence and power and person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we learned, was filled and led by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus gives you that Holy Spirit so you can have a relationship with God and access to the same power that empowered his life. And then number four, here's, here's the last one I want to share. There are three ways to establish an identity. Some people establish their identity by what others have said or done to them or about them. Some people establish their identity by what you yourself have said or done. <laughs> I guess this is just who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I say about me. 
Our world only offers those two ways of defining identity. Jesus offers a third. It's what he has done. This woman is not going to heal herself. Jesus comes along and gives her a new identity. It's like a daddy taking a little girl in his arms and saying, I love you and I'm here for you. She is not defined by what others have said or done. Not anymore. She's not defined by what she has said or done. She is defined by what Jesus has done. And as a result, her shame is lifted. Some of you are carrying shame. You may understand that Jesus forgives your sin, but what you don't understand is that he also lifts your shame. So some of you, you know you're forgiven in Christ, but what you don't know is that you are still carrying that shame because he has lifted that from you. I'll give you one last verse. This is Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before, it is a joy of Jesus. It is his joy to forgive you. It is his joy to lift your shame. It is his joy to give you a new identity. You're not a burden to him. You are a blessing. He is seeking worshipers for the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Your sin went to the cross of Jesus. Your shame went to the cross of Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. Your shame is lifted. Question, what's your shame? What's the thing that has been done to you that haunts you? What's the thing that's been said about you that wrecks you? What's the thing that that you've done that you've regretted every day since? Or the thing that you said that you wish you could take back? What has Satan used to haunt you and torment you? I'm going to pray. And while I pray, I want you to release that, whatever that is, so that the Holy Spirit can take it to Jesus and take it away from you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.